Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Just a heads up that this podcast deals with a few difficult topics today, so please do take care of yourself while you are listening. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to Desiree Ann Martin. Desiree Ann is a published author, poet, and general word junkie. Her writing can be found in anthologies, online, and in the Living While Feminist collection. In 2018, she published a poetry collection called Believe More Deeply and a short story called Orange, White and Blue in the Life Writing Collective anthology, This Is How It Is. That same year, she published her memoir, We Don't Talk About It Ever, which was described as searing, brutal and breathtaking. In July 2020, Desiree Ann won the National Arts 24 Quella Books Corona Fiction Competition with her story of a young girl from the Cape Flats dealing with her father's alcoholism withdrawal during lockdown. The story called Delirium beat over 1,200 entrants and Desiree Ann is hard at work on a short story anthology and her second book. Besides being a prolific and successful writer, Desiree Ann is many more things too an addictions and general counsellor in private practice, a director of two companies, a lecturer, a postgraduate student at the University of Cape Town, a wife, a full-time mother to an 13-year-old and a 4-year-old, and a part-time warrior woman. She's a recovering addict with 16 years of sobriety, dabbles in her own unpredictable mood disorder, and is a vocal advocate for mental health issues, as well as the destigmatization of this. In her piece in Living While Feminist, Desiree Ann explores many of these parts of herself and her relationship to feminism. And in that piece she says, I'll be honest, I didn't know what it meant to be a feminist for a long time. Not truly. It was a word I feared, influenced by those around me. However, like any words that are feared, they have power. I didn't know I was a feminist until long after I had actually been one for a while. Because no one told me what feminism was, that I had a right to hold these sacred beliefs and ideologies. Indeed, Desiree Ann's words have power, and she is a full-blown rights holder to feminism, as we all are. So welcome, Desiree Ann. Uh, hi, Jen. Thanks so much for the introduction, and thanks for having the conversation with me. I'm so excited. I think let's begin by talking about your piece in Living While Feminist, which is called No One Tells You. You begin with some of the misconceptions that you had about feminism and how you later came to accept and claim the term. Can you tell me a bit about that feminist journey and what made you change your mind about calling yourself a feminist? I guess my feminist journey can best be described as awkward, uh, experimental, and by the end, revelatory. I had first heard the term as a rebellious adolescent and I need to add an insecure, insecure and self-conscious rebellious adolescent who rebelled against pretty much everything but had no direction or true cause. I was afraid of this new world and the word feminine, feminism that I had discovered because I, I was fearful that I would never fit in, 
and I convinced myself that I had to be a bitch and a feminazi, um, burn my size B cut bra, uh, grow my underarm hair and hate all men. Um, it's not that I wasn't prepared to do those things, but I had such a single-minded view of feminism, but it was until I started to read feminist writers, and even then I thought I would never belong in this world as I wasn't strong or fierce or vocal or educated enough. That was the awkward, awkward part. Eventually, as I got into addiction recovery and I became a woman with the guidance and support of other strong, loving, nurturing women, I realized that I could take my place in the feminism arena. I didn't need anyone's permission to be strong, proud, fierce, and powerful. And in, in your piece, you work on dispelling some of the silences around growing up and trauma and also around the relationship with your parents and how that affected your way, the way you are able to live and love in the world. You say no one teaches you about establishing healthy boundaries or how to develop your self-esteem or how to manage your intense emotions. No one tells you that the stained blueprint of your parents' relationship lays the foundations for yours. And no one tells you how to go about the precarious, hazardous business of being a girlfriend, lover, and a wife. No one tells you that as a woman you believe your love is more than enough, but that you, as you are, are not. You also go on to speak about marriage and what a very strange institution it is. And I think your words will resonate with many listeners and readers. I wonder if you can share anything that you've learned or that feminism has helped you learn about how to set more healthy boundaries and to recommit to healthier patterns of love and relationships. If I can just speak to my piece for a little while. Um, it's entitled No One Told You. And essentially that stems from the dysfunction in which I grew up in and where no one spoke about anything, where secrets and lies were fostered and misinformation was rampant. It talks to the fact of my lived experience, at least, that no one takes gold children aside and tells them how to navigate what can be a painful, hateful and confusing world. As a survivor of childhood and adult sexual abuse, for example, no one told me that I need never be a victim that I was supposed to have been kept safe as a child, and that no is a full sentence. I was ignorant of so much, my proclivity for addiction and self-loathing and self-destruction. No one told me that my skin color would mark me as different in apartheid South Africa growing up. And perhaps even now, I never got the talk. You know, the one about body changes and raging hormones and burgeoning sexuality. I had no blueprint, no map, no compass. So I just went forth into the world like a madwoman, quite literally, with no purpose or sense of identity. Um, I had a huge heart, but my brokenness attracted similar damaged individuals and the toxicity was rife. And I had learned, as you said, that from my blueprint of my parents' sick and twisted relationship, I inherited their legacy and I ended up marrying a narcissist who cheated on me multiple times in the same way that my father had done to my mother. No one had told me, like you said, that marriage would be complex. Marriage would hurt, that it would fall short of the white knight rescuing the damsel in distress fantasy by a mile. All I heard was that I had to stay no matter what. 
I was unaware that my womb would be the site of terminations, multiple miscarriages, and ectopic pregnancy, and surgeries to remove fetuses who could could not survive my war zone of a a womb. And then when I did fall pregnant, every singular moment was intolerable. I was unaware that I would feel zero maternal instinct whatsoever when my babies were born. And I would hate myself for it, as I'd wanted a baby to fill an emotional, abysmal void. I thought my child would provide the unconditional love I had been craving. But no one informed me that I would resent my children for being so needy and that I would loathe myself for being so selfish and despise the dysfunction passed down to me. I try so hard not to reenact what was seared into my brain by them, but no one tells you how hard it is to break the insidious cycle. And society screams that women should do it all, mother, partner, a success in the workplace. Women are just expected to quietly get on with the task of doing it all and not complaining about it. So I wanted to write about what I believe a lot of girls experience, the suffocation of their own feminism, the right to equality, the right to have a voice, the right to belong, the right to not perpetuate negative media stereotypes, and the right to accept and love themselves and know their own true power and worth. I think it's so powerful what you've, the section that you've read there and some of the themes that you've touched on because so much of systemic oppression and patriarchy tries to locate the problem with you. If you don't fit in or conform to expectations, then it's you who must adjust your behavior. And what your what your piece does through exploring your own experiences shows that this is a system. And in, in particular, when you talk about the difficulty you had with your reproductive health and challenges with accessing an abortion, miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, and so many important issues, you make it clear that this is about um, medicalized and systematized patriarchy that did very little to respond to the emotional needs of women. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why you thought it was important particularly to touch on motherhood um, as a topic and also around the experiences of birth and falling pregnant? I couldn't agree with you more with the statement about the systemic patriarchy um, that we need to rally against. Um, In terms of motherhood, Society, they publish those books, you know, those books which which say that you will you will glow with the rosiness of of pregnancy, and um, I think I glowed for one day in my second trimester in my first um, pregnancy that result resulted in a live birth. Um, for the rest of it. I was an absolute mess. I had um, pleurisy, I cracked a rib from vomiting and from morning sickness, um, and I um, I felt so let down because that's not the message that had been passed on to me. Um, I was, and when I had my first daughter and I didn't bond with her, I felt like such a failure. But I also was also acutely aware that um, this was also perpetuated by by media stereotypes about how mothers are supposed to naturally know how to parent their children and attend to their every need and be selfless and you know and it's 
crap. <laughs> um, and that's just putting it mildly because that's not my experience of it at all. And the more I spoke to women in the past few years, I, my daughter's going to be, thir- my oldest daughter's going to be 13 in a week or a few days. And my youngest is already four. And the, the more I spoke to women, the more I realized they were having the same experience, but society was still like through a bullhorn sending out this message that we have to to be all of these things, that we have to be inherently maternal and that we have to, um, in terms of our pregnancies, that we have to be able to, to handle all the hormone changes and the the body changes and to me it felt like invasion of the body snatches quite frankly um and like i said earlier it was absolutely intolerable from the beginning to the end um so a part of me felt like i was doing something wrong and then the other part of me just questioned the message that had been sent to me and then i realized the message was wrong that those books are wrong, that somebody, you know, and maybe I will do it, needs to write a book about how things really are, because no one tells you, like my piece suggests, that that you are going to have these reproductive issues and like that you might be faced with the need to have a termination, that that your body will reject fetuses um, and send you swirling into depression and that you might end up becoming a rejecting parent, you know, where where you want to actually like, you know, um, smack your kid because just because they're, they're energy vampires and needing of attention all the time. Um, not that I'm promoting smacking your kids. Um, nor have I, by the way, <laughs> but um, it's just that it's it's not the truth. It's not my lived truth, and a lot of mothers that I've spoken to, it's not their lived truth either, this message that, that has been perpetuated. Yeah, and I think when you have messages that are considered as like an overarching norm, you know, you're going to be this glowing, happy mother who can't wait to sacrifice her life or her children it really is um terrifying I mean I, myself I've not got kids yet and in thinking about the decision to have them that is what terrifies me that I feel like I've only really now as an adult in my 30s been able to start to learn to set those healthy boundaries that we're talking about earlier and I worry that I'll too easily go back to old harmful patterns of like putting other people's needs first at my own expense I think that contributes to you know burnout it contributes to the emotional trauma that you've described now, um, which is also around the topic that you mentioned when you read a bit of your piece earlier around this idea of success. This idea of what it is to be a successful woman is so often from outside of us and not internal. And in your piece, you sort of ask like, what the hell is success? Um, When I was listening to another podcast by, by two South Africans called Kombucha and Kala, she, one of the hosts mentioned she also had this um, really conflicting relationship with success you'd often like work a full productive day and ended feeling just like a failure and so what she sat down and did was redefine success for herself as 
moving, breathing, and creating. So at the end of every day, I should say, have I moved my body? Have I taken time to breathe? And have I created something? And if she did just those three things, even if she did them in the first 10 minutes of her day, she felt much less stressed. I'm wondering if how you think feminism can help us redefine success and renegotiate some of the harmful expectations there are on us. You know, in terms of success, I... I'm not sure what the yardstick should be. It it is at the moment this external, um, once again, systemic structure of uh, all I all I get in my mind is this image of of I don't know if you remember like in the 80s like working girl. She goes to work and she works nine to five and she's a success and she, she you know she's trying to climb the corporate ladder and um uh, in that movie she didn't have any children but in in my movie <laughs> um i have children but i also i mean i i'm involved in two ngos um i'm a director of two companies i'm a mentor for um a foundation that does mentorship for entrepreneurs and i'm involved in um with Pitt University as a consultant and so so I do a lot of things and I, I'm never sure if I'm a success and I I always wonder if if I just do like you know if I if maybe if I write my second book I'll feel like a success um because it's about to me in my mind it's about like how much do I I do translate into how successful I am and that is um, is something that society has 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 taught me, you know, just do 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 instead of be be be, you know. So I'm a human doing instead of a human being. In terms of feminism, I think we need to we we really need to redefine our version of what personal success is, and that's not just in the workplace. It's it's across all the different spheres of our lives, whether it's family or social or spirituality. It's like, what is this success? And um, and redefine it for ourselves instead of looking outside of ourselves for affirmation and validation and a pat on the back saying, oh, you're doing a good job or waiting for that next promotion or, you know, salary increase. Um, success to me means the ability to to help others um and when i'm of service um i'm at my most successful and i think it's very helpful and connects to the way that you work and your work as an addictions counselor um, can you tell us a little bit about what your work and uh, what your work is and what it entails and what it's meant for you in your journey as a recovering addict well, I always say that my superpower is writing and my day job is counseling. <laughs> so um, I've been in the uh, field of counseling for 13 years now um, and been in private practice for eight years um, and been in recovery. And that is um, recovery from alcoholism, substance addiction and eating disorder um for i actually celebrated about a week ago on the first of august my 16 years of sobriety um which was quite amazing um so my journey my journey in counseling is is that it's about connecting with people you know it's about i have this i have this mantra and it's 
connected to what you said earlier. And the mantra is, is that there is hope always because I see people who are hopeless. I see the underdog and I'm a champion for the underdog. I'm a sucker for, for the underdog. Um, um, but I believe for everybody that there is hope and that if people are willing to take responsibility for their lives and make the changes that are necessary to evolve or change or process their pain. And so I believe that's possible. And that's what I've been doing for, for 12 years is all I am is to me, to me, all I am is this like mirror for people this conduit for change you know and I've seen hundreds of people over the years um and I love what I do um and recovery let me put it to you this way it's that when, when, before I came into recovery I was I was a intravenous heroin addict um and a sex worker and um and I was like, I weighed 45 kilograms and I had track marks on my arms and my hair was falling out and I was in deep denial. And I was, you know, I felt hopeless and I felt like I was losing my will to live. Um, and doctors had were giving me six months to live because my organs were failing. And then when I got into treatment, um, that's where I learned the power of speaking your truth. And um, and I started opening up and letting go of the shame around some of my past. Um, and it was only in recovery that I learned how to be a human being again, that I learned about boundaries, that I learned about consent, that I learned about toxic relationships, that I learned about all of the things that I needed uh, to do to become um, strong, powerful and I mean that in not in like a in a money kind of way but just a powerful voice and a strong woman and also break the cycles of the past and the painful patterns of the past and the first thing I did the first way I did that was when I divorced my first husband because I just said no, I won't be treated like that. And I think it was the first time in my life I, I'd said that. And I also didn't want to show my daughter that that's how women should be treated by narcissistic men who are unfaithful multiple times. And the second big decision that I made in recovery was how to break those painful patterns of the past for my daughters um having come from the dysfunction of secrets and lies I mean I'm so proud to say that both of my daughters are free to express any emotion on the spectrum of feelings and they don't have to keep secrets and they don't feel need to lie and they feel safe and so I have broken that that generational legacy that was passed down to me without my permission. And I could only do that through recovery and being taught boundaries. Um, and as painful as, and as difficult as those cycles are, you know, to change, um, I still find myself sometimes, you know, shouting at my daughter and channeling my mother. Um, and then I go, ugh, but I did it, you know? And I think that's an epic parenting win. So I'm very proud of that. 
So my recovery is very much a part of my life and counseling is very much a part of my life. Um, and the two are quite enmeshed. Um, and I'm quite proud to be doing what I'm doing. And, and I really, really love my job. I think many, many people who are listening will be able to relate to some of those elements of not being able to speak up, of feeling disconnected or, you know, lost, especially in times of isolation and of not being able to say no when they want to, which I think is why it's so fantastic um, in your piece that you end with sort of a clarion call to readers, which I'd just like to read out. You say, I've been through many diverse incarnations and experiences of womanhood in my lifetime. And I believe that I've survived to tell this truth. We as women need to stop judging, shaming, vilifying and competing with each other. We have enough bloody battles to fight against a prejudiced and bigoted society that ranks us as second class citizens in terms of our roles, what we are paid, what we should look like and be like and what we are capable of doing without fighting each other. We have a greater and more archaic antiquated barbarians at our gate. I think um, one of the things that patriarchy does is make it seem as if there's only space for the very best woman or the very best feminist. And that works in favor of keeping the system as it is, because if we're all still fighting against each other, that's difficult to unite. I think one of the other contributors to Living While Feminist, Tiff Mugo, says if we're all trying to be the most radical, smart bitch in the room, then we support the trope that we don't get along. Um, and the patriarchy pits us against each other. And um, why did you think it was important to end on this note of, of unity and solidarity? And how do you feel about your piece all these months after it's published? I think it was, you know, a call to action more than anything else. We can't do this alone. This, I'm not sure what this is. Uh, um, I haven't quite defined uh, what the barbarian at the gate looks like, you know, but I know he's there. I know they're there. And, uh, and we're busy trying to be so flippin' fabulous and fantastic with a gazillion followers and likes and comments and, you know, like like the the author said, you know, being the best bitch in the room and that we're 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 missing the point as far as I'm concerned. It's like this is about unification, you know, and this is a movement and a movement requires masses. Individuals can can do their part, but if we're busy fighting each other, there are going to be gaps in our war plan, you know, and we will be infiltrated and we will lose. We really will. Um, and so it was, I, I ended on that note as a call to action for women to stop shaming each other and stop trying to outdo each other and realize that, you know, we, we are effectively at war here. Uh, and that might sound like really, um, exaggerated, um, but it is. Um, it, it is, you know, feminism um, and what we're pushing back against, it is war. So, so that's why I felt the need to end on that call to action. Um, I read my piece again last night and um, I was like, that's pretty good, man. <laughs> Um, it is. <laughs> thank you. Uh, <laughs> I, 
And I don't think I'd change, I don't think I would change anything about it. Having read it again last night, this many months later after submitting it, um, I still think that everything I write holds true, you know, not just for myself, but but I'm hoping that my story does resonate with other women, that I can help contribute to breaking the silence but all the misconceptions about being a woman and all the expectations about being a woman in society today. I hope I can help. I, I'm just hoping that other people will read it, other women will read it, and that it will resonate with them, um, that they will see that there is so much that, that we aren't told. There is so much that we don't know. There is so much misinformation and that it will empower women to, to speak their truth, to say, actually, you know what? It's not like that for me. It's, it's not like they want it to be. It's not like they say it is. I think that's so true that reading other people's stories helps us to grow. It can embolden us and it can improve the way that we are able to feel empathy for people. Um, and this year you've been able to do that in a second way. You won the Quella Corona Fiction Competition. So you're creating other characters that people can relate to. Can you tell us a bit about that story and what winning this prize has meant for you? Yes, thank you very much. I'm really proud of having won that. Um, I wrote a short story, a fiction short story, um, and the call for submissions just basically said it had to be around the issue of the coronavirus. And my, personally, one of my biggest concerns during lockdown was that on again, off again, um, access to alcohol. Um, and as an addictions counsellor, it, it frightened me and concerned me even more because of the impact of alcohol withdrawal. And um, it's not pleasant and at its worst, it can lead to death. Um, so I wrote my story about a young girl. She's 11 years old, her name's Mia, and she lives in the Cape Flats. And her father is an alcoholic. And they have, and he lost his job, and his her mother doesn't work, and he is withdrawing from alcohol, and she is basically seconded to go forth and find him alcohol um, while he's withdrawing, and um, I was, yeah, I was shortlisted, and then I was um, informed that I'd won, and I was over the moon so yeah that's delirium on the arts 24 website congratulations and i think it's so fantastic that you've managed to touch on um the social issues because i think that's where people are able to access different perspectives when the lockdown was announced i work in the gender-based violence field so i was immediately when they said there's going to be no alcohol i thought thank god because they're going to lock people in their homes with abusers who are using alcohol which makes abuse more common and then people on Twitter were very quick to correct me or to give me another side of the story which was the harm that is caused by alcohol withdrawals and I think you know we really often when we're coming at things we come at with all our lens and knowledge and you miss out a whole other perspective so it's been really interesting for me to watch that whole discussion but I know that that's not all that you're working on that you're writing new things would you like us to tell would you like to tell us some more about what you're working on writing wise uh, I write 
as much as I can. I write on my phone in between sessions. I write in the middle of the night because I am an insomniac. Um, I do as many uh, writing workshops as I can uh, online these days. Um, yeah, I, I just, I write um, as much as I, it's, it really is my passion. Um, I, I want to just do it all the time if I could. If anyone's out there and would like to be a um, patron, <laughs> please feel free. But um, so I'm, I've been working on some short stories. I've had a, sh a short story selected for another anthology, which is coming out next year, which I can't talk about quite, quite yet. Um, but I'm very happy with, with, with that selection as well. Um, and then I'm just doing, I'm doing, I'm at the research stage of um, my second book, um, which is going to be a kind of memoir, kind of creative fiction. Um, yeah, uh, but it's, it's about women and it's about how four generations of women, South African women of color, um, dating back to like um, my grandmother, which is the turn of the century, uh, last century, and how society um, informed who they were and how in turn that impacted how they parented their girl children and how the, which lies and legacies were passed on from generation to generation right down to the fourth generation um, and weaving that story together. So that's the, the basic framework and outline. And I'm just busy doing some research at the moment on, on yeah, 1920s South Africa. Most of us who are writers are also readers. And I've got a last few quick questions for you. One of which is, do you have a book that has inspired your feminism? When I was a child, it was definitely Little Woman by Louisa May Alcott, because I just wanted to be Joe so badly. Later on, as I developed a passion for writing, it was uh, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf, which looked at um, the established literary criticism at the time that female writers were inferior to their male counterparts. And I'm also obsessed with Anayi Nin. So Henry and June and actually everything that she's written would definitely feature. Do you have a quote that inspires you? I have lots of quotes that inspire me, but my feminist quote that inspires me is by Rebecca West, which who was a British journalist and novelist and critic. Um, and the quote is, I only know people call me a feminist when I express opinions that differentiate me from a doormat. I think we've touched on a lot of advice during this podcast around speaking up, connecting, trying to establish boundaries. But I wonder what advice you have for other feminists on their journey. I hate giving advice because it sounds like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but um, I guess I'd say you have to do the work on yourself. You, you have to process the past. You have to process the pain. You have to resolve those battles with the demons that are lurking inside of you until you find accept, acceptance and access to the power that you have inherently inside of you. Also, I'd say gravitate towards like-minded women, find strong mentors, 
And in that way, you can find your purpose. And my final piece of information, which is another man advice, which is another mantra of mine, is always speak your truth. And thank you so much, Desiree, for taking Desiree and for taking the time to come on and to talk about your work so honestly and to talk about your life so honestly. I think you're going to contribute to so many people's healing just by being your honest, authentic self. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I loved every second of it. Like I said to you earlier, it's a privilege to be a part of Living While Feminist um, and have, have my words in black and white on your creamy pages. Um, and, <laughs> and you curated the hell out of that book. So well done to you. Thank you very much, Jen. You can find out more about Desiree Ann Martin's writing and work at her website, DesireeAnnMartin.com. And you can support her writing via Patreon at Believe More Deeply. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.